Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, Shavuot Tov, everyone. Nice to see you all. <clears throat> Thank you for being here from all over the country. Uh, Cheryl, thanks even on the road from uh, joining us and all of you local, locally and afar. Um, Welcome back, Toby. We're glad you're here. Hi, Aglaya, everyone. Yehuda, Eric, Eileen. Um, so we are going to learn today um, about Almanot as part of our series on chesed, on kindness. Of course, we're always partially dealing with a unique channel of kindness and a unique population. And yet, um, we're also just looking at the intricacies and sensitivities and emotional intelligence involved with how do we take care of others, whoever they are, um, and get the care that we need and the compassion that we need for ourselves as well. And so this is partially about a specific population, which is unique to the biblical ethos, and, um, and also far beyond that, because the commentators for every category understand it as an archetype, but also as a springboard towards healing the world through radical love, not only channeled love to unique, unique populations, but also radical love in all directions. Um, obviously with its limits as it's tempered by justice and as it's tempered by self-care. So let's start with a poll question. <clears throat> a quick poll here to see who's in the room. <clears throat> Which of the following best describes you? I am a widow, I am a widower, I am not one, but I am really close to a widow or widower. I am neither one, nor am I really close to one. Um, of course, we all have friends who have lost a spouse, but um, we're talking about really close. So let's see um, where everyone falls out here. Okay, let's see our results. <clears throat> okay, 14% say that they are a widow. We don't have a widower here at the moment. 57% say they are particularly close with one and 29% say that they are not. Okay, excellent. So here we go, friends. This is a relatively short uh, presentation, <clears throat> uh, shorter than usual. Um, and we can jump into the conversation together after that. So today people with means have savings and oftentimes even life insurance policies. Unless a family is in poverty, an almana, a widow, should not necessarily be completely broken financially. But in the ancient world, prior to retirement savings and life insurance policies, if only the man had the ability to work outside the home, a widow would often be left without a means to protect herself or a means to marry or find other means of security. For this reason, the Torah continues to emphasize again and again and remind us of how much attention we must place on protecting the widow. The Torah teaches, for example, you shall not ill-treat any widow or orphan. If you do mistreat them, I will heed their outcry as soon as they cry out to me, and my anger shall blaze forth and I will put you to the sword. Your own wives shall become widows and your children orphans. So those are fighting words from God. Of course, the idea of an angry God is problematic. Um, according to the Maimonidean tradition, of course, God has no emotions. This is just um, anthropomorphic language used to convey what humans will understand. 
Um, but God is a God of reason, distant from emotions. According to other Jewish theologians, emotions are real. Nonetheless, this is not an anger similar to a type of human rage. It is merely a way of pedagogically teaching what matters. Um, and, and by saying God is angry means this really matters. The almana is commonly linked up with the other two most vulnerable categories of people in the biblical ethos, the ger and the yetom, the stranger and the orphan. Those three are linked together consistently. The ger, yetom, and the almana, the stranger, the widow, and the orphan. In the Midrash, Rav, y- Rav Yassi taught, why does God love orphans and widows? It is because they have nobody to turn to except God. As it says, a father of orphans and a judge of widows is God in God's holy dwelling. Therefore, one who steals from them is considered to have stolen from God because God is the father in heaven and will get angry. Okay, so that's one explanation as to why God is angry. It's a personal attack not only out of love, but because God, so to speak, becomes father, becomes parent to um, the parentless and to, the, and to those without support. But interesting enough, the mitzvah, according to the Rambam, according to Maimonides, applies not only to the financially vulnerable, but to all almanot, being a widow or widower goes beyond the financial realm. It says over here, a person is obligated to show great care for orphans and widows because their spirits are very low and their feelings are depressed. This applies even if they are wealthy. We are commanded to show this attention even to a king's widow and king's orphans. As it is written, do not mistreat any widow or orphan. How should one deal with them? One should only speak to them gently and treat them only with honor. One should not cause pain to their persons with overbearing work or or aggravate aggravate their feelings with harsh words. And one should show more consideration for their financial interests than for one's own. That's a pretty high level. Anyone who vexes or angers them, hurts their feelings, oppresses them, or causes them financial loss transgresses this prohibition. Surely this applies if one beats them or curses them. Even though a person who violates this prohibition is not liable for lashes, the retribution one suffers for its violation is explicitly stated in the Torah. I will display my anger and slay you with the sword, as we read earlier. There is a covenant between them and God who spoke and created the world that whenever they cry out because they have been wronged, they will be answered as the Torah states, when they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And so, you know, the radical universalist says, I don't care about gender. I don't care about race. I don't care about um, socioeconomic status or sexual orientation. I love everyone. I'm going to help everyone. Um, And um, this is not exactly what the Jewish tradition says. The Jewish tradition says, yes, we shouldn't wrong anyone, um, but we have unique obligations to unique people. We're obligated to a mother or father differently than a stranger. We're obligated to a Jew differently than a Gentile. We're obligated differently to an orphan or widow than we are to um, one who has familial support. And so um, Judaism does not embrace a radical universalism that views all people as equal in regards to what we owe to them. Um, that, That is a big difference from how Christianity is often articulated in our own day as a sense of kind of a radical love for everyone and everyone equally. Um, and of course, that's not even possible um, to treat everyone equally. It is interesting and instructive to note that Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch suggests that the word almana shares the same root as the word ilam, a mute. As a widow may feel she is not in a position to speak up or has no one to speak up on her behalf. So that's kind of interesting, this idea of an invisible person who is not seen or an unheard person who is not heard. This idea of a literally like the paradigmatic person who can't speak up for herself is this person who has lost um, her public advocate. Um, 
of course, today women speak up as much as men do, or maybe not empirically true, but ought to be ought, ought to be the equal right. Um, but historically, of course, a husband was the advocate for his wife um, as she needed. Now, I want to make a, a, a quick uh, grammatical note here, which is to say, normally we only do a play on words when all three letters of a shoresh, of a Hebrew root, match. Um, that is to say, a root of a word has three Hebrew letters, right? Um, and, um, and, 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 and in this case, it's Aleph, Lamed, Mem, right, for Amana. Um, and normally you need all three to correlate to make a correlation. But Rabbi Hirsch is an anomaly. Rabbi Hirsch is one of the few traditional commentators who believes that two letters in a root is enough. And so he, he takes um, um, Elem, which is missing the, um, uh, the, the Aleph, um, and says that the Lamed Mem is enough to make this correlation, and I find it convincing. <clears throat> Perhaps the most well-known story of the proper treatment of an Almana in the Tanakh is the beautiful story of the Book of Ruth, which we touched on a, a little bit last week. There we are dealing with not one, but three almanot, right? If you recall the story, right, that, um, well, let, let me keep going. Uh, often what's, um, what's overlook, overlooked is the first example of dealing kindly with the almanah, Naomi's concern for the welfare of her daughter, daughters-in-law, right? Naomi has two sons, they marry two women, um, and that uh, her husband dies, and then her two sons die, and now it's three widows together. Um, as soon as she herself, a widow, decides to return to Israel, her homeland, she begs Ruth and Orpah, now widows themselves, to return to their mother's homes as there is nothing for them in Israel, and they will only find hardship there. And once in Israel, Boaz's treatment of both Naomi and Ruth, Orpah had already chosen to, to heed Naomi's advice and return to her home, is legendary, Boaz's treatment. Furthermore, it's instructive to note that Naomi's concern for the welfare of her daughters-in-law was emotional and social, not financial. It's also interesting that she, as a widow, is also obligated to take care of widows, just as a refugee would also have an obligation to take care of refugees. It's not like I'm the entitled one, right? And that means my obligations cease. Yes, even though each of us has our own sense of entitlements, based upon our own vulnerabilities, we don't lose our obligations to others um, who have their own entitlements and, and rights. And so Boaz too, while going out of his way to look after Ruth's financial well-being by instructing his lad to allow her to collect from, her from his fields, um, was equally concerned for her emotional well-being. Perhaps the most glaring example of this is that Boaz did not chastise or embarrass Ruth when he discovered her sleeping at his feet. And Boaz's marriage to Ruth is, is a great paradigmatic act of compassion towards an almana, right? It is, it is so hard for us to enter the biblical ethos um, around, around marriage. Um, but, you know, and it, today it is, it is hard for us to imagine that one prefers to marry a virgin um, over a non-virgin. Like it's so far from our our reality in terms of how we think about people we love. And yet um, we know here that the idea of marrying someone who was divorced was far less appealing. The idea of marrying someone who was uh, had lost their spouse was far less appealing. Um, and so this was deemed an act of great compassion for, for a man who was wealthy like this to marry, uh, to marry, to marry a widow. Um, so it is not only in the ancient world that the widow is invoked as one of the most vulnerable categories of people for us to prioritize. Consider Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. Both parties to the war read the same Bible and pray to the same God. What, 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 a, what an amazing speech here. And each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. With, with toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him, to, 
who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. What a remarkable speech given in 1865, right? I mean, when we think today of, now we're not going to get into cancel culture and all the difficulties there and all the conversations here about who's on our team and who's against our team, this and that. But literally, like in the bloodiest war in American history, right, with the blood like still pouring out, the anger raging, the sense of betrayal, right, and the sense of moral rightness, like we abolish slavery, they uphold slavery, like they are wicked, betrayers, like they are morally corrupt, and all he is trying to do is heal a nation and to, to, to in the name of God, reinvoke compassion, even for the people that one would detest the most um, at, at a time like this. Um, it's interesting, at a week uh, at a week that is in some ways closest to 1865, where we're, where we're, we're, we're re-watching the insurrection and thinking about like betrayal um, on the highest level, like to think about accountability, moral accountability, and also to think about like Lincoln's work of like, yes, there's accountability, and yet there's also healing in the name of God. And here too, like his invoking of the widow and the orphan says like, also, there's a whole lot of innocent, vulnerable people who got caught up in the, all this, all this garbage, you know, and all this hate and all this bloodshed. So it's um, interesting to see that how he brings that biblical ethos in here as well. Today, we are trying to learn how to recognize the truth as a value. Ah, Aglaia, the South probably would have been much better off had Lincoln lived, even though he wasn't, uh, even though he wasn't perfect by a long shot. Yes. Not perfect by a long shot, that's for sure. Um, and yet, yes, had he lived longer, what uh, what would have been with the South? Thank you. I, I'd love to hear more thoughts on that when we get to conversation, um, especially since you live in the Deep South. <laughs> so um, so Rav Shigar, um, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but I want to bring it up again, a po- uh, who was a postmodern mystical um, Kabbalist. Uh, that, that's obviously... Um, uh, uh, and uh, superfluous because uh, a Kabbalist is mystical, but a, a postmodern Kabbalist, we could say, um, he grapples with this concept and um, uh, he died all too young. He died all too young. And he's, he's really uh, growing in, in, uh, in people tr- uh, understanding his works today. Here's what he says over here. What is our position regarding sati, wi- widow burning? which is still practiced by some in India, right? We referenced this in the past, and I want to revisit this. From our perspective, this custom of widow burning is extremely immoral. Yet some women believe that burning themselves alongside their husband's bodies is the best thing for the souls of all concerned. The perplexed postmodernist will have double vision. While railing against the practice, he will also be able to see the issue from the point of view of those who practice sati, To prevent postmodernism from sliding into absurdity, we must set boundaries. Where is the line at which the postmodernist will refuse to accept the other's values? What criteria and methods should be used for setting such boundaries? And can one propose other ways of coping with the paradox of pluralism, which is amplified in the postmodern era? We no longer expect a grand ultimate justice. Such a justice is unjustifiable and nowhere found. The best we can hope for is a specific weak justice. That justice is generated not by a series of metaphysical arguments, but by human discourse and compromise. As Gervitz emphasizes, by letting go of the need for hard justice, two rival sides can begin to communicate and resolve profound conflicts pragmatically. By the constant contact, struggle between conflicting conceptions of supreme justice. There are several possible models of soft justice, all relinquishing the presumption of absoluteness. Yet he notes soft justice has its own limits and at bottom relies on non-relativistic assumptions, such as the belief in human rationality, whose absence would preclude fertile discourse and accord. So um, do we take the culturally tolerant view and respect different societies and their moral norms, or do we embrace the human rights stance and defend widows? I believe we must defend widows and find a collaborative way to empower locals in that society to uproot such an evil practice so that it not be viewed as an outside cultural attack. 
The great prophet Isaiah taught us, seek justice, relieve the oppressed, defend orphans, plead for the widow. This goes far beyond financial needs. It means ensuring that those emotionally distressed should receive the attention and love that they need and deserve, as we saw above regarding the book of Ruth. We should seek out those grieving, especially in their later years, when they may feel more lonely and vulnerable, and find ways to show them patience and compassion. Okay, friends, um, I'm going to pause there, and I would love to um, open up our conversation together. Do you really want me to talk? Oh, yes, of course we do. Okay. Well, <laughs> all right, just throwing this out there because weird thing. Okay, so it really fits, though, that um, the Abraham Lincoln aspect really fits. Um, the reason why was because Abraham Lincoln actually wanted to give amnesty to the South. He was the one pushing for amnesty. It was the, the radical Republicans in Congress were pretty angry and they wanted to punish the South. So John Wilkes Booth did probably the dumbest thing he could have done, okay? And as for Sati, um, Sati is a weird case though because um, the instant, okay, so it's associated with one cast, of course, and everything though, but instances of Sati actually went up during times of occupation and the British were the ones who were complaining the most, but they were forcing these horrible regimes on India. And so a lot of these women felt like they had no other choice or they were warriors like the men and it would immediately <laughs> send them to a better afterlife. So sorry, too much postmodernism for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm too much of a postmodernist. I'm <laughs> I've, so I've you, got... you said you are a postmodernist or not? Oh yes. <laughs> okay. So so Aglaya, can you um can you can you unpack for us a little bit more what you make of how the colonization, why the colonization would increase the, the, the sati practice? Okay, um, the long story short, the women who um, were most associated with sati practices were actually like, um, they were the upper caste women. And so they viewed themselves as warriors alongside their husbands. And in a weird twist, it's like um, the equivalent of all of the men dying in battle. Like, and you're automatically going to go on to a better afterlife because of it. When you see sati among women of the lower classes, though, it's because they really believe that they are going to start, it's either starve to death or burn on my husband's funeral pyre. Now, anyone who knows about what the British did to, to India, <laughs> um, that really was a reality. But then the British come in and say, well, you can't commit sati, but they're making it worse while they're saying you can't do it. So, I mean, but okay. I don't know, if you deal with the British Empire, just... yes. Why? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so just so I understand, though. So you're so as a postmodernist, you you would respect the Indian women's right to engage in sati. Not exactly. Okay. <laughs> Not exactly. I the way that I felt about when I there had to be options. It's it, it's kind of like you if you ask any question to anyone today, do they give options? Are there options for? people whose husbands have died, people whose wives have died, stuff like that. What are, but also the idea of who actually, um, um, who actually counts in the category, because we're talking about emotional support for, you know, people whose, you know, spouses gone on and everything. Um, talking about emotional support. Well, what, and also who qualifies actually as a widow In my mother's case, she and my father had been divorced for over 20 years, but then he died. So, and she considered herself a widow anyway before he even died because of the circumstances. Well, now he actually did pass away. And so because of that though, it's the widow, you know, kind of that kind of the emotional aspect of it though, you know, their marriage didn't work out, all of that stuff. And, you know, it was kind of, it was um, strange. So I, for me, it was mostly, okay, so how do I emotionally support you while this is going on? So. Great. Yeah, Great. that's why I say options, because you have to, there's so many, each case is different. Each individual case is different, so there have to be options. Thank you. Thank you for weighing in. Thank you so much. Hi, Eileen. How are you doing? Good. Um, a couple of things. So part of my understanding is because women had no rights and were chattel or property of their husbands, one of the ways in which they resolved that was a Leverite marriage. 
in which if your spouse had a living relative, generally a brother, the brother would step in and marry the widow so she had his protection. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, okay, good. That's your first point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the times that we're discussing are what, 2,000, 3,000 years ago? I mean, the relevance to us today is very different. So I'll give you an example. I am a widow. I have not felt that I have to be quiet or be hidden. That's not my thinking. And along with that, uh, a couple of years after my husband died, I decided I wanted to start dating. So I went on a website and here's what I learned. You do not say you're a widow on a website because then you get all the scammers who think that you're unable to cope. You have to put on there, oh, I'm divorced, right? And then if you meet somebody, you say, no, that was a safety of precaution. So there are things you have to do to protect yourself in today's world. Oh, great, great thing, Eileen. So before I go to your first comment about the uh, about the leave right marriage, um, can you say a little bit more about um, how in the dating world, uh, being a widow, you you understand to be perceived as a as a pro or con? Um, a widow is seen as somebody who's weak, has no support, uh -huh. and is looking for emotional attachment. So the scammers, who generally are men, play upon that. And they become this perfect male, but they don't have money to come to the U.S. and visit. And they would love to. They'd love to marry you, but they don't have the money. So if you will wire, right, this is how they play. And uh, it is so bad, the F. FBI has issued warnings and they actually have a code, a number. And if you find it, it lists all these different things that they warn you about. So too many. If it's so bad, then that must mean that, that there are women actually falling for it. There are oh, women who are yeah, there are hundreds of women who have lost millions of dollars. And huh. a lot of people are not aware of this. Huh. So it it's a very dangerous situation for a woman to put herself in, which is why identifying as a divorcee means to someone who wants to scam you, oh, maybe her ex-husband is friendly with her, so I'm not gonna get as far. So they generally don't bother you. They Scammers are looking for vulnerable people and widows are vulnerable. Now, I've also heard the opposite from widowers who were used by women who scammed them. So it works both ways. But generally, it's the widow who gets taken advantage of. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Let me ask you just one other follow-up question before we keep going. Um, it, um, it, it, going back to the, for, for, uh, bracketing the scammers, going just to the social uh, dating dimension. If is is it acceptable? Is it a pro or con to identify as someone who has whose previous spouse has passed away, but avoid the taboo word of widow? Meaning, it, is your understanding that uh, like how 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 do you understand for those in their sixties, seventies, eighties who articulate themselves being divorced versus being um, being a widow or widower that to be perceived differently in the dating world for seniors? Um, yeah, my experience is I'd rather date a widower than a man who's divorced. A widower generally has had a long, satisfying marriage and is now in a circumstance where a wife died of cancer, Alzheimer's, something like that. So the widowers, to me, seem to have more compassion, whereas the divorced men I dated um, generally we're pretty amoral people. Um, I quickly discovered they were not my type of people. Okay, very interesting. Thank you so much. Okay, so thank you for sharing that. Before we move on, I want to respond to your first comment, which is about the, about the Leverite marriage, um, which is very interesting. 
And I want to remind folks of how this works. So in Hebrew, this is called yibum, yibum. And um, there is an obligation for a brother if one's brother has died um, and the brother's wife has not yet had a child, there is an obligation for that brother to marry her um, in order to, um, because she will be less desirable out in the world. And so it is best to do, uh, to, you know, right that wrong for her and for his brother. And as I've mentioned in the past, if we've been learning together for a while, but I'll remind us in the Jewish mystical literature, anyone remember, um, uh, the relationship with that newborn uh, baby and the deceased brother? It is a case of reincarnation that that baby born from the brother is the soul of the brother who just died um, in, in Gilgalay uh, Neshamot um, in, in reincarnation. So um, now it's worth, it's important to, remember, to, to state today that the rabbis did not erase this mitzvah from, from Devarim, from the 25th chapter of Deuteronomy. Um, but they actually just channeled it into a refusal. And the refusal is called chalitza. Mm -hmm. And the way that works is, and this is still practiced today in the Jewish traditional world, is that they take off the shoe and spit in the shoe as a way of kind of, um, um, you have to kind of disgrace, you're disgracing her by refusing to marry her. Of course, she probably also doesn't want to be locked into that marriage today. Um, but in, in, in the traditional sense, you're disgracing her until you spit into the shoe and then you're off the hook. It, it, so many rabbis today even say that, that yibum is, is prohibited today from, from doing yibum. You have to only do, have to only do chalitza. Um, and so this is something that has been forgotten, but thank you for sharing that. By the way, it's also worth mentioning, and I'll post it here in the chat, that the Quran in the Islamic tradition the Quran also has a practice of yibum. They don't obligate it, um, but it is also a good thing in their tradition. I'm going to post over here if you are interested in comparative religion. I will, I will post it over there. Um, Actually, the woman's done childbearing because, okay, so her brother died. I mean, her husband died and her brother is, well, and nobody else wants to. That's also wasting her childbearing capacity. So that's, yeah, I don't know if that is relevant at all. But. Oh, 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 you're saying if he doesn't marry her? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah, that there are children that could come from her and that would be wasting. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's hard for us to re-enter a tribal mindset, but okay. also in a tribal mindset, it's diminishing the tribe right. as well. Um, and so um, anyways, um, so, uh, and, and, you know, uh, it's the, the the tribal mindset was not only about communal wealth, um, but communal power and communal well-being. So there's really a lot to say about that. And anyway, surely, yes, yes, yes. You could have more than one wife in that time. Right. I think you yeah. could have up to four wives. So that made it a little bit easier to do. Uh, yes, uh, yes. Um, the that 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 dimension is is, is true. Um, so yeah. So thank you for that. Okay, yes, Toby. Thank you, Eileen. Okay, I want to change the subject just a little bit. Okay, great, great. Postmodern justice. Okay, yes. The first week of law school, us green law students were confronted with whether or not we believe there was such a thing as absolute justice. Yes, I love this. <laughs> In other words... Is there something that nobody should do, you know, or that everybody should do? Um, and is this an objective standard that sits out there just waiting for us to discover it? Or, on the other hand, is justice relative to whatever uh, environmental factors or cultural, socioeconomic factors, whatever you want to call it, uh, is, is justice dependent on all that stuff? And oh my gosh, the discussions that ensued from all that were, as you might imagine, pretty interesting. Um, and I'm still not sure what I believe about that, although I'm kind of leaning towards some things do kind of just 
they're just wrong. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not, it's, it's easier to, for me to decide that there are some things that are objectively just wrong. This is one uh, of my favorite topics. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Uh, okay. I, and you know, deciding that this, some things are absolutely right under all circumstances, that's a little bit harder for me, but the, the, um, the situation was we were studying a case concerning cannibalism. And it was, it was a case from the 1800s, very early 1800s. And, you know, these guys had been out at sea for so long. And, and uh, uh, well, you know, they were starving and nobody found them. And was it okay to eat somebody if, you know, your thoughts about getting rescued were like nil? And the... The end result of all that after, you know, you can imagine this classroom, this was all week that we were discussing this issue. Uh, at the end of it, what they determined was, well, it's okay to eat them if they're already dead, but you can't kill them. <laughs> so the, what, what am I trying to say by all that? Um, it's, it seems that there are some absolutes like thou shalt not murder and possibly some of the rest of the Ten Commandments maybe. Uh, but other than that, everything's all relative. So the postmodern justice thing, I'm not a big fan of postmodern justice because I think you give up too much. You can't. It's possible to give up too much uh, to the more aggressive side. Um, it's not always it's not always a fair fight. That's my thoughts. on. Thank you, Toby. And you have um, you have spent decades um, working in the justice system for vulnerable people. And um, it's it's inspiring to see that um, that given that work, you still hold on to uncertainty, even while uh, you have some strong leanings. And the debates from law school still exist within you. I'm very um, I would be very uh, you know concerned about um, learning with folks who feel they've got it all figured out. What are we doing? What are we doing here together? Our, our hope is to complicate matters even further. And as you know, you're in good company in the Jewish tradition which also really wants to reject absolutes. If we didn't reject absolutes, we wouldn't have a Talmudic tradition. The whole uh, project of the Talmud is to convert the absolutes of the Bible into uh, complicated non-absolutes. And so, and that includes the 10 commandments, most certainly. Yes, should oh, you shouldn't lie, right? But of course you should, if you're gonna save a life, you shouldn't kill. But of course, you should if it's self-defense, and that's the only way. Or you're you're in war to defend your country. Um, you shouldn't steal, right? But you should steal bread if it's going to avoid a a, a major health disaster. And so, um, and so we see here that um, that even all the way through Immanuel Kant, even Kant was still con convincing people in his categorical imperative. That there were that almost everything around us was moral absolutes, and so that's not very long ago from 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 the Bible through Kant, and still today um, in ways that of course people uh, apply inconsistently, and so I appreciate you um, you flagging that. I think that we should all be concerned about a radical moral relativism, which seeks to do away with um, raising the moral bars in our own our own lives. And yet we should also be highly skeptical of, of, of fundamentalisms that are trying to impose absolutes upon others without understanding them and their cultures and, and their contexts. So thank you for that. And I, and I hope we'll continue that conversation. Um, so um, um, I wanna see who we haven't heard from yet. Uh, welcome into the room, Yehuda and Eric and Miriam and Francine and Eddie and Alex. Um, and hopefully we'll welcome back voices we've heard from as well. Oh, and of course, Cheryl, yes. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. Um, we live in a time right now where where we are living in an, in a time of absolutes in a lot of ways because we are so polarized that um, one side thinks that they are absolutely right while the other side sees them as absolutely wrong and of course takes the opposing uh, opposing view. So um, I and I. That was that was just one thing. But the other thing that I was thinking of is that when you said about not not stealing, I mean, the whole Les Miserables was based on the theft of a loaf of bread to keep his family from starving. And so there there it goes right to your point. Thou shalt not steal. But 
you should. And of course, it was proven at the end, at the end, you know, who was right and who was wrong and all of that. But I, I think right now, I, and I'm sure that there have been other periods in time also where um, we have lived in a time of polar opposition to feelings or interpretation. It's really about interpretation too. So anyway, uh, this is really interesting though. This yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. And so I appreciate that. And I, and I appreciate that all this is coming up in the context of the widow, um, because as we see, um, obviously we, we want to protect vulnerable women. I know we all agree with that. And I think part of our question here is to what degree do we want the widow to be a unique category? And to what degree, you know, 3,300 years later, do we think of, of an almana as a completely unique category, um, different, di different from other categories of, of vulnerable women? And, um, and, uh, and on this category, on this conversation of absolutes, I think Cheryl raises the, raises the point really well that um, today we really do live in an era of absolutes. As much as many of us might appreciate the nuances I think many of us do find us in a space where, um, where we see that binary and we see that uh, tension as it exists in American political life today. Um, and, you know, it's sort of funny. And part of us needs to break away from uh, the, the, the mass media's ownership over our minds. Like if we just walk down the road and talk with people of any different persuasion, we'd almost feel like America's pretty united. Like people are very are by and large polite to each other in the coffee shop. They're by and large polite to each other at the gas station, right? By and large, if you're just a part of society, you know, involved in commerce in the grocery store, like we're doing pretty well. Like there's a lot of order and respect and society doesn't look broken. And then you get onto the world of social media and of media and everything is completely as if there literally was a civil war happening, as if we're, there's two fundamentally different camps that you can't identify when you're walking in the streets. And so that doesn't mean I want to diminish those political differences of how we view an insurrection, of how we view public health, of how we view democracy and the like. And, and, yet, um, and yet I also want us to um, kind of lower the temperature on that to some degree by you know being in conversation, many of us I won't I won't name who else on the call, but have family members who are of completely different political persuasions. And when we spend time with them, it's both delightful and infuriating <laughs> because it can be very difficult to engage in certain conversations. And um, and yet, like we still show up for them, we still love them, you know. And uh, I, I m many of us um, and and. Um, and, and and so we, we we find ways to look past that. Now, one other thing on 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 Cheryl's uh, uh, insights there, um, which was just to this point around um, around absolute justice once again, which is and around the, the stealing the bread. I think that one of the concerns, and rightfully so, unlike us embracing the relativity of moral truth um, and how it changes in different contexts, is how e hard it is for people to be moral judges on their own. One can very quickly go from, I'll steal some bread because I'll die today if I don't have it, to, you know what, I cheated a corporation a little bit, but it's okay, because corporation, because corporate America is fundamentally corrupt, and, and I deserve more than corporate America. So I'm going to get a little more than my share and cheat corporate America. It's very easy to kind of slip into that mentality. All of a sudden, someone finds themselves in jail, said, how did this happen? I thought I was a part of the morally good side that was taken a little bit more off my bill or a little bit more off my tax report um, because at the end of the day, I should deserve more because I've been robbed by society. And so how do we, how do we both, when it uh, comes to others and it comes to societal justice, embrace the relativity, but when it comes to ourselves, hold the highest moral bar of accountability for ourselves as we, as we go on. I think that's part of what's being a Jew is being a little more gentle with others and being a little bit more rigorous with ourselves. You can't be too rigorous with yourself, though, because the character who is the moral absolute in Les Miserables, okay, okay, yes. 1,400 pages, I got through it and sobbed like my oh, eyes. Oh, you, you read it. Oh, uh -huh. I only yeah. know people who have watched it. You actually read it. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Anyway, okay, I'm crazy. But anyway, though, <laughs> okay, the thing is, is that the character who is the moral, like the one who's morally absolute about everything ends up committing suicide because of the fact that he also is too rigorous about his own sense 
sense. Like I can't be in the debt of someone who's a guy who stole bread because his like he needed something to eat. So I'm going to jump off of a bridge into the sin because I can't for the life of me live with myself if this guy saved my life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Aglaya, thank you for sharing that. Um that this is a great point that when we look at some of the um the moral heroes of our own tradition we see a similar thing. This idea of being so hard on oneself morally um, that it puts oneself at risk. And I, I, I suspect most of us know what Aglaia is referencing here, but just to unpack it in a 20-second version, that Javert, who spends his entire life pursuing Valjean um, in the name of law and order, um, simply can't live with the fact that Valjean saves his life and is ultimately a pers person of virtue, or at the very least, a complicated moral person. And because of uh, that, he um, can no longer imagine live living without that that absolute commitment to law and order and black and white um, as as he understands morality. So thank you, thank you for touching on that. Um, really powerful. Okay, let's hear from someone else. We've got about twelve minutes together left. Yes, hey Eddie. Hey Rabbi, I'm wondering if the rabbis had any commentary on debt when it comes to uh, widows. Does the debt transfer to the widows like it kind of does here in the United States? Or does it get completely cleaned? Because um, I know like in Mexico, um, some debt that was from the previous spouse gets transferred over. I'm wondering if there's any commentary on that. Okay, well, that's a great question. The, the, um, the, uh, the, the short answer is, I don't know. Um, but my, um, I, I don't know what was actually done in different societies at different times. Um, and it's complicated. Because if there's children involved, um, verse not. So, so here's the first thing I would say. The first thing is that what, the way we relate to debt today is, of course, completely different from a pre-capitalistic model. Um, that today debt is so massive. The amount of debt that people have on their mortgage, in student loans, in medical debt, the amount of debt that people can take to build a business is so enormous and that is um, problematic, but also progress. It is progress that people can access capital beyond their means, because that means that if you want to buy a $300,000 house, but you've only got $20,000 or $30,000, you, you can be a homeowner. And so that's like a beautiful thing about modern society, that you can own something that you can't afford to own. And yet also the debt system we live in is also really problematic in many ways, and so, but the idea of, of people having debt in ancient society um, is in no way understandable to us um, because um, uh, there was there, there was simple, it, it, the, the model was in no way comparable. Now that said, there, there were of course still business dealings and there were of, of, of course models of loans um, where there could be debts. Now in a Jewish context, we already know from loans that you cannot charge interest. Um, and so um, there's, already, there's already a major shift that we see there. And if one had children, inheritors, then in, so the short answer is if one had inheritors, yes, the debt would be owed upon the inheritance. Um, that if one inherits this from, you know, they, they would still owe the debt. It's not like the debt is wiped clean. The, the, the case that I don't know the answer to is, is where the um, the wife would inherit her husband's um, assets, where there are no children, and um, if the debt carries over to her, and I'm pretty sure the answer is yes, but I I I need to do some research there because I'm sure there's a lot of complexity there. Yes, Eileen. Okay, so my husband um, had a Discover account in his name, and after he died, I called Discovered, and they said. No, I did not have to pay that debt off. Wow. And that wow. was really nice. Wow, that is astounding, actually. That, I, I, that is astounding that uh, if, as you as the inheritor of whatever assets he had, Correct. that you did not have the responsibility for his debts as his spouse. I think probably because I had not signed the uh, credit card agreement. Oh, okay. So you're not a co-signer. So, so right. that's... That's very interesting. I don't, I don't know if we have any 
um, lawyers on the call who work in this in this specialty, or if anyone else has any experience with this. So th that that's very interesting what you're sharing. I mean, there are benefits to marrying, and there are also risks to marrying. I mean, just from the financial perspective, of course, there's other dimensions as well. Right. Um, okay. So Eddie wrote for my car loan. I actually pay extra so that if I pass away, the debt gets canceled. Yeah. I do have a co-signer. Okay, that's interesting. Oh, okay. Cheryl says Stan is an expert, so maybe he'll he'll share some. Oh yeah, oh yeah. He has a lot of expertise here, actually. Okay, and I see Miriam writes. Um, even women trying to get to the point where they would be an, an aguna is often in a similar position as the widow. Okay, very interesting. Yes, thank you for sharing that as well around the aguna in the, the case of the agunot. Um, okay, who else wants to jump in here? Eric or Francine or, or Miriam or Alex? Or anyone else? Um, Rabbi, I've got a question about the treatment of widow, widows and widowers. Um, you know, something I've been trying, struggling to put this into words, so if it doesn't sound right, it's just bear with me. You know, I understand, like, when we talk about the treatment of parents, you know, if it, where does it conflict? Like when I talk about uh, children uh, of parents, uh, you know, like, you know, you honor them, but you know, there's certain, but there's, you know, there, there are, can be exceptions of limits. Like, and when it comes to the treatment, you know, the treatment of widows and widowers, where does, where is there kind of balance of where it is acceptable for, you know, to prioritize the treatment of widows and widowers and, not that they get a pass, but they, 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 there's additional care and consideration to take into it. But where does that line, where does that line stop? Where yes, right. What a great question, Eric. What a great, yeah. Yeah, please keep going. No, I'm just trying to, I, I'm, I'm struggling to kind of figure out where does that, where do, where does that line drawn? And I've not been able to understand that. Okay, great, great. So here I'm going to distinguish between Sedek and Chesed, between justice and kindness. And um, while we see that the widow and the orphan and the stranger are pretty high on our priority of not wronging, um, there's an extra, I mean, we shouldn't wrong anyone, but there's an extra degree of not wronging this, this, this category of people. Um, um, that that um, they are, and so they are high on the priority of who we should show kindness to. Um, uh, among strangers. However, I'm unaware of any lit uh, rabbinic literature that places them higher on the justice side, which is to say in our tzedakah, we, uh, well, first of all, in a court of law on the, on the procedural justice end, um, they of course should have no priority. If you had a, mar a married woman, a woman in court and a widow in court, of course they should, they should receive the same, um, you know, um, justice, uh, uh, fairness, fairness in the justice system. <clears throat> but in the in the tzedakah front, the widow does not outweigh one's parents or one's spouse or one's children or one's neighbor. Um, they don't um, they don't enter into um, into some moral triage in regards to our obligations. Um, they they are uh, in the priority sense in in our kindness realm, but not within the justice realm. And so we do see we do see many clashes um, in that triage. We see oh um, if if one's if one's spouse and one's parent had needs, who do you choose? If one's child and one's parent had needs, who do you choose? If one's teacher versus one parent one's parent had needs, who do you choose? Um, and then there's the, the, the case of hospital triage, the older sick person, the younger sick person, the person, um, you know, and the like, um, the, 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 the rich person who needs help, the poor person who needs help. But I'm not aware of anything that, that deals with the, um, the widow uh, in, in regards to that moral triage case. And so um, I think it does kind of enter in as a kind of moral sensitivity when all things are equal. Let's say somebody has two sisters and they both um, are financially in the same place and, uh, and I'm well off financially and I can choose which sister to help, right? And everything is equal while choosing the one who's a widow over the one who has a partner seems to make sense. Um, but what about the opposite? What if, um, 
what if I had a um, a, uh, a a a widower, a widower? What if I had a brother who was not so financially off and had lost his partner, who also was earning money when when she was alive, and now he is more vulnerable? How does that play up against uh, my sister, who is um, better off financially? Than him, and so these are complicated issues, and thankfully the rabbis don't resolve it all for us. And so we can we can enter we can enter the uh, the 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 murky moral waters together. Hi, Miriam. Thanks, Eric. Hi, Miriam. Oh, we can't hear you. You see, your mute is off, but we can't hear you yet. Okay, Miriam. Okay, Miriam is having trouble with audio. So um, maybe she'll write in the chat if possible. And let's see if anyone else wants to jump hey, in. Uh, can I try that again? Does that oh, work? Oh, yes. Hi, Miriam. Now we hear you. Sorry, I had speakers plugged in. Okay. I think that a category that is very close to the widow nowadays that was not uh, considered previously because it didn't really exist. And that's divorcing women, especially women who leave abuse situations because they leave with nothing. They have no collateral because that's left with the husband. They often have no bank accounts, no education, no job history, no social security. They are basically the equivalent of, of widows. They have no support. And there is surprisingly little support available to them, like try and find a divorce attorney who's affordable. Um, so uh, that's why my comment about women who were even trying to get to the position of Agunat, where, frankly, the, the Jewish legal status is far less important than the social status that they live in now. Great, great, Miriam. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and so the the um, the rabbis, in some sense, were um, very hesitant on divorce because they knew the vulnerability it would create for um, for the woman um, in many regards. And yet, of course, they always maintained the right of of divorce. Usually, it was the presumption was the man who wanted to divorce a woman wouldn't. Of course, that's not our presumption today. Um, uh, and thus, that, that that was the source of their hesitancy, be, that he choose her vulnerability. And yet we know today um, exactly what Miriam is sharing, that one who has uh, engaged in divorce and has in some ways not received the justice from the justice system as, as it should be executed properly, um, that she is left in such a position which would be historically similar to that, to, to the to the almanac. Um, and all the more so in the case of an aguna, as Miriam raised in the chat, one who was denied even the divorce, um, uh, the divorce rights, um, and was stuck in chained chain to the marriage without even being able to get out. And this, of course, brackets all the other issues as well around um, around child custody and those complications. And so that's very interesting to look at, kind of how, in some sense, our sense of the of the vulnerability of a widow has decreased over the millennia and yet how our sense of given the co commonality uh the how pervasive divorces are in america and um and the legal the the legal fees and all involved in that the risks involved there so friends i know we have to pause here but i want to thank you all for your participation and for joining us um and engaging in this rich conversation and I want to share that next week is our last topic um, that has to do with the direct interpersonal, right? Our first category was kindness towards specific individuals. Next, we're going to go towards kindness towards, well, we have one more, and then kindness towards all individuals as opposed to specific individuals, and then kindness through restraint, and then care for our environment, and then the self-improvement, the notion of kindness um, self-improvement as a catalyst for kindness towards others as we look at character. And so next week we will look at comforting mourners, nichum, uh, nichum avelim, and we, then we will move forward. So thank you for joining us and uh, wishing you all blessings for a great day.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.